Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. So I was talking about a little bit about ESGs before the break. And, you know, like I said, exciting is a lot, but you need to know about this topic. If you're not familiar with it, please do. It's a big thing. The left is pushing for this stuff, and it is... It is it is a way to weaponize it is a way to weaponize an investment firm to go after companies that they don't like. It's a way to punish you get billions of dollars here and you can punish companies you don't like you became you you end up trying to use the capital markets to accomplish socialist goals and create anti-competitive practices and and take it forward. And it, and it's and it's just a, a sad thing North Carolina's engaging in it. Um, it's, uh, it's sometimes referred to as sustainable investing, responsible investing, impact investing, socially responsible investing, and they, they invest based solely on environmental, social, and governance. And, and Roy Cooper's embraced this. The left has embraced this. It's not going away. Now, why is it bad? So if I wanted to tell you, why why should you care, Chad? Why do I care? I don't care about this. Are you talking about climate change? I don't care. I see the climate every day. It's always amazing to me that the climate change adherents, like the Obamas or the Gores or whatever, will buy beachfront property. You know, Hillary Clinton. They'll buy beachfront property. And you're like, wait a minute. You've spent years and decades telling us that the oceans are rising. There'll be none. And you go and buy one. Ugh. But over at the Financial Times, they've been trying to warn people about this, how dangerous it is. And this is from theirs. This is actually a little bit dated. But because it's becoming so popular, Roy Cooper's embraced it. Chapel Hill has embraced it. A lot of the left is embracing it. It's becoming a big thing here in North Carolina. Um, almost every – so if you, I'm going to try to get through this. Those of you who read too many anti-ESG screds may already know this. We've got big global problems. As a capitalist, red in tooth and claw, but I just can't see how financial markets have a meaningful part to play in solving those problems until citizens and governments act first. Almost everything that Tarek Fancy says, this is that's an author, a different person, about environment, social, and corporate governance has been said before in one form or another. The significance of what they write is how they say what they is. Um, the uh, chief investment officer for sustainable investing at BlackRock, which is the most important institutional face of the claim that ESG investing has an important role to play in helping environment promote social good, holding the corporate folks accountable, and so on. In my role at BlackRock, he writes, I was helping to popularize an idea that the answer to a sustainable future runs through ESG and sustainability and green products. Or in other words, that the answer to the market's failure to serve the long-term public interest is, of course, more market. A little bit like the NRA's traditional answer to mass shootings and related concerns around public answer, the answer is more guns. But what's really bad about this is you should be making investments based on a return, risk, a lot of other things, not because of a government policy. The fact that Obama, and or then Biden now, Obama too, passes something called the Inflation Reduction Act, and then that glams onto ESGs, and it's using government to help coerce and force companies into the, it's an unbelievably and I'm not that's not a conspiracy theory 
I mean, no more than the conspiracy theory that the virus might have come from a, a Chinese laboratory or that there was no Russian collusion. It's funny how all the conspiracy theories have kind of fallen apart. They're not conspiracy theories. if they're, it's, it's not paranoia if they really are out to get you, right? It is kind of sad. Anyway, but if you want to look through this, do look through this because the ESG situation is really by the core mechanisms of ESG investment is divestment. But when an investor sells a security in the secondary market, another person buys it. All the ESG selling may drive down the price at which the buyer buys, giving them an opportunity for juicy returns as the price recovers. They do they do these shift. Anyway, I'm not going to bore you with it. It's out there. I encourage all of you to do that. Now, we talked a little bit about the Biden budget yesterday. We know that it is an homage to giving people what they what they claim they think they want, not what they need. But it is a way to say, here's me giving away everything and taxing the rich. So that and then we'll see what the Republicans do. I'll meet them on the battlefield. I'll sit down with them. I'll negotiate a deal that works for America because and every bit of that deal that works for America will be a way to accuse Republicans of helping the rich. Every bit of that deal with America will be a way to make the Republicans look like they're hurting the poor. Because the Biden administration, the Cooper administration, the entire Medicaid expansion is about giving away money to somebody. President Joe Biden's budget calls for a top marginal income rate tax rate of 39.6%, up from 37%. Single filers making more than 400000 and married couples with an income above four fifty a year. So why would you feel bad for those people? Just raise their taxes. He's also pushing for a 25% minimum tax on Americans with wealth exceeding $100 million. So if your net worth, everything you're worth is $100 million, 25% minimum tax on you. It's not going to pass. It's dead on arrival. But it's a way to say, look, I went after the rich and the Republicans want to protect them. It's the, it's the way they do. It's reward. Biden's plan aims to reform the tax code to quote unquote reward work, not wealth. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Isn't part of why people do work hard, create new opportunities, create new companies is because there is a wealth reward? And isn't part of having wealth the fact that you spend money on things? You don't just sit there and put it in a cave because you'll lose money on inflation. The, the value of your money goes away if you just hoard it. But the, the, the sheer will, will of spending it in every way, you're helping someone. It's not the broken glass fallacy either. The old broken glass fallacy, if I just break a window, somebody will have to come fix it. That's not what I'm talking about. That would be a fallacy. It's a Bastiat thing. For the five people who know what that is, that'll, that'll matter. But the p point is, you don't need to punish success. If you're saying, I, I want to reward work, not wealth, White House Office of Management Budget Director Shalanda Young told reporters, while the proposed tax increases aren't likely to pass, the plan highlights Biden's priorities with a starting point for future negotiations. Now, all of these stories, I, I read MSNBC, NBC, CBS, the three-letter networks, CNN, PBS, all of those, they're very glowing in their, this, in, in their reception of this, in their promotion of what Biden's proposing here, or at least his staff. That this is the way to do it. It spends a lot more money. It adds to the national debt. It supposedly taxes you know, the, the, the 18 billionaires in the country at a point where they'll recoup stuff. And I want to take you back because history will tell you a couple things. This doesn't work. This kind of, this way of adding massive taxes never builds an economy. 
One of the most vivid examples of this happened in 1989. Jim Wright and the Democrats passed something called uh, the luxury tax. I don't know, maybe many of you may not remember that. It didn't last very long, but they passed the luxury tax. Uh, tax any car or boat over 50000 you were going to pay a 10% surcharge on. Beautiful, right? Tax, that's a way to tax the rich. But all the rich did was they started buying used cars and used boats. And what you did was you put boats and car companies that sold really nice high-end stuff out of business. You put those people that built those, all those jobs started getting lost. Those companies were getting crushed because there were no new sales of high-end luxury cars and boats. So within about eight or nine months, even though the Democrats thought they were going to make tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars off this, they made almost nothing because they base everything. The left bases everything on people not changing. In other words, whatever they bought before, they'll still buy after I pass this tax. No, they won't. Just like climate change. We're all going to sit here. If things were going to get bad, we humans would do nothing about it and just die. So... We were, we've been talking about stuff that's not the most exciting. It's a Friday afternoon. It's not the, the you know it's not the end all, but it's stuff that is critical to be aware of. Your cities are doing it. Your counties are doing it. Your state, your national government are looking at this ESG stuff. They're certainly trying to e- influence all of your kids. I- I'll get to that in a minute. Here in North Carolina, I, w- I was reading because you may not know this, but right off the coast, the southeast coast of North Carolina, they're trying to put windmills in. Uh, hundreds of acres of windmills out there. Now, these things aren't your your mom and dad's, you know, windmills. These things are amazing. Now, for reference, the some of the lighthouses are about 150, less than 200 feet, 150 some odd feet. A lot of the lighthouses that many of you have been to, you can see the that light about 20. The, the given due to the curvature of the Earth and distances and that height, about 22 miles. Now, these windmills are supposed to be 20 miles offshore. Now, the difference. I just want you to think about this. Some of these windmills are 700 to over 1,000 feet tall. 1,000 feet tall. They're only going to be 20 miles. They're going to be five times, five times, six, seven times the height of any given lighthouse. And they're going to be just offshore. So on a nice, clear day, you'll be able to see them. And that's that's going to be end. And think about this. So you have to run the cables. You have to run those cables back to shore. You have to then plug that into the existing power grid. All under the auspices of this makes sense, okay? Now, I want you to think about it a little further. Solar panels and windmills, you've got that. Great, you're producing energy. Now, we're not even going to get to the technicalities of each one of those windmills needs, you know, barrels of oil. We're not going to get to the technicalities of what it takes to keep those things going or where the parts that you put in those windmills come from or when they get done where you put them. The point being, let's just say they produce electricity and you've got solar panels that are producing electricity, when the sun's not a shining and the wind's not a blowing, you still want to cool your home in the summertime. You still want to heat your home in the winter. You still want to be able to watch sports on your TV. So you have to have a conventional form of electricity that works 24-7. So this becomes a very expensive proposition. You have to have a nuclear facility or a coal facility or some kind of conventional that can produce it 24-7. So the cost of this, I love how people say, well, the cost of windmills has come down. The cost of solar panels has come down. still exorbitantly high. But furthermore, you can't rely on that 24-7. You don't want to rely on it just when the sun is up or when the wind's blowing. Because if neither of those things are happening on a cool summer night, you still need electricity. So when you hear Democrats talk about embracing all of this stuff, you've got to, there's, there's, it's often devoid of a, of a common sense argument about energy. And I'll guarantee you, you'll be happy if a hurricane ever hits. And I remember in Hugo, I think it was Hugo hit Charlotte in 1989 or 88, somewhere. I was 
in the 80s. I remember it was supposed to hit Wilmington and ended up hitting Charlotte. Came in through Charleston. You're going to be glad that those chainsaws are working. You're going to be glad when the electricity gets knocked out that there's something other. There's not, not a solar-powered chainsaw. There's not a solar-powered weed eater. And your lawnmower, once you mow it for about 30 minutes, the, the electricity is going to cut off on your battery-powered lawnmower, too. And you're not going to be able to clear your yard or save anything. Now, to that end, to that end, the Democrats have told you, look, they're making significant investments in climate. They're, they're setting net zero carbon emissions by 2050. They're, they're forcing GM and other car companies to produce massive amounts of electrical cars that are out there without even having the grid to support them or recharge them. They're going to do all of this. And not to mention, by the way, how are your roads going to get fixed? Because right now, and this is, a, this is a beautiful one. Right now, your cars, you're paying taxes in that gas that you buy to put in your car. That tax goes to support your roads and infrastructure. So when you get an electric car, how are you going to support the roads and infrastructure? Here's the beauty of that. The government can put monitors on your cars, and they can monitor where your car goes, and you can pay a mileage tax. Not only will they know where you are, where your car is, and where it's been, and where it's going, but you can pay a mileage tax based on the number of miles that car travels your actual impact on the road. So swallow all of that, marinate on that, chew on it for a little while, but here let me give you the fun part. This is the really, really fun part, and this is from the president's own words yesterday. It, it, it's fascinating. I, I'm going to give you his words, and then I want to read something else. So here's what the, the president had to say. That's why I took the most aggressive action ever and all of history in any country to take on the climate crisis by lowering your home energy bills. By lowering your home energy bills. He's done nothing to lower your home energy bills. In fact, they're going to go up. But what's even, I tell you what, hold on to that. Because, well, I'm going to tell you this. This is the amazing part. So the members of the Biden administration, while overseas, have asked, have asked, for there to be more oil, global oil production. So on the one hand, telling you that they're doing all of this about climate. On the other, telling the country it's going to be net zero. Telling everyone we're going to force cars to be electric by a given point in time. Speaking on the sidelines of a conference last week, State Department officials said the United States wants an increase in global oil production. That runs completely contrary to what Biden said yesterday. And this State Department official said this yesterday. We'll talk a little bit more about that on the other side of the break. All right. Are you prepared for a disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for a military surplus that's real? Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old school, traditional store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time. American made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear. Old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and all the time at oldgrouch.com. Before we went to the break, I just mentioned you know, that Biden, Team Biden, goes around the, the country talking about, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act it had nothing to do with inflation, had nothing to, excuse me, it ran it up. It had nothing to do with reducing it. It was a massive climate change bill under the auspices of helping the economy in some way, which it did not do, while going around saying they're going to stomp, stomp out oil producing, uh, they're going to stop pipelines, they're going to stop drilling, they're going to stop all these things at a time when gas prices just still are, and you know, they haven't recovered, and making it difficult because 
cheap, affordable energy is the greatest comp- competitive edge, one that we have in this country, as opposed to most of the world. I was talking to my friends that I met, uh, mentioned yesterday from California. They're paying five seventy six dollars a gallon, and and and, and thankful. They said that their tax, their tax on a gallon of gasoline was the equivalent roughly to North Carolina's price per gallon. They couldn't believe it when they're seeing prices at you know at two thirty eight, two twenty eight, things like this. They couldn't believe it. They, they just couldn't. They, you know, the cost of living is so much so different here. Now, on the one hand, Biden administration is saying we're we're going to end it, we're stopping it, we're doing everything. But when they go overseas, it doesn't get reported much here, and this is. Um, it's just unbelievable. The United States wants to see the world producing more crude oil, including OPEC members. So not domestic production of oil. They want to see. Remember, wasn't that long ago Biden went, you know, kind of hat in hand, went to shake the, the folks in the Saudis and, and, and ask Venezuela to produce more. He went to, you know, people that are kind of geopolitical, not quite friends and some enemies to ask for more oil while stifling our ability to move it around in this country stifling our ability to do stifling to do it here at home and going overseas to do it. The United States wants to see the world producing more crude oil. So this is the exact same day that Biden said he had introduced legislation more to do climate crisis stuff than anyone in history. You can't say both of these things. And none of what he's done has reduced your energy bill here at home. None of it. Your energy bills are not lower. They're higher and they're going to continue to climb as long as these insane policies continue moving forward. He asked OPEC members, not he, but members of his staff, this is what a State Department official said on the sidelines of Sarah Week, noting that the global economy is recovering and more supply is necessary to beat demands. As world economies recover, we will see more consumption, and therefore we'd like to see supply meet demand, said Jose Fernandez, Under Secretary of State for Economic Affairs, Energy and the Environment. He then went on to add that this included output from OPEC+. Plus which last year agreed to slash production by around 1 million barrels per day and has signaled it has no immediate plans to reconsider that agreement. The AFP report notes that although oil prices have retreated from highs reached last year in the first months after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they are still quite high and probably likely to be higher than for some time. The Biden administration released close to 200 millions million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to counter the price rally, which caused a spike in retail fuel prices, a move that prompted a lot of reaction. Now, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is at a 40-year low and needs to be replenished, but prices are too high for the U.S. federal government. The bigger and more global problem, however, is spare production capacity. The capacity was among the issues that U.S. energy executives and OPEC delegates discussed on their first day of Sarah Week. This is kind of their annual gathering. According to Reuters' report, quoting one attendee, both executives and OPEC officials were concerned about spare oil production capacity and its sufficiency to meet growing oil demands. Some analysts have forecast that the global oil market will swing into a deficit in the second half of the year, driven by China, which will push global demand higher while supply lags behind. Charles Kennedy for OilPrice.com. So just think of it. Let that sink in. Again, another thing to marinate on. This is a good day for marinating. It's a Friday. ACC tournament's going on. It's pre-big dance selection. A lot of you will be, hopefully the weather will be okay. It's going to be chilly. Probably get below freezing at one point. Feel a little wintry out there. But let some of this stuff just marinate because it all is connected. From the very beginning of the show through through now, all of these issues are connected. It is a an underlying philosophical construct. It's not a conspiracy. So you're pushing the world to produce more oil. You're cutting your ability to supply it now, and China is going to do quite well. 
the China recovery is help is going to help drive the oil stuff. We could do it. We have plenty of supply. We have plenty of natural gas. We have plenty of oil. We're stopping and strangling ourselves while sending our diplomats overseas to ask them to produce more to compensate for what's going on. And have you looked at plane ticket prices lately? Have you looked at that? It's a couple of things on the plane side. Now, planes are, if you notice on your, if you go to travel, well, I don't know, Travelocity or Google Flights, a lot of them, they now track the CO output of your flight. In other words, when you buy a ticket, you see your portion of that CO2 footprint so that you can mentally stop traveling in the air. So you can feel some additional guilt. So you will feel bad about your decision to travel over time. And not only that, the flight schedules, trying to get from point A to point B and back, have become ridiculous. We have not recovered. We, we have not gotten all the flights back. The, flight, the flights that you can get to places, even the Caribbean, from you're trying to get from North Carolina to the Caribbean and back, from Charlotte, Greensboro, Raleigh, there's a few flights here and there, but it's not easy. So a lot of those flights, you may get there in five hours, but it's going to take you 20 hours to get back. We haven't recovered on that side. But the guilt, the guilt and the overwhelming pressure for you to consider every day the impact you're having. Now, you and I are adults, or at least almost everyone listening to this. You have a mature perspective to go, okay, yeah, that's a little politicking. But if you're 18, 19, and you see this kind of stuff, it weighs on you. It, it, your, your world's already colored from, you know, you see these kids with metal straws and they're putting these metal straws. They're like, well, I don't want to contribute to the environment and the problems. Say, okay, what'd you do with the past, you know, two and a half years of masks? Did you throw those away? Of course you did. You didn't consider that being a problem, but a plastic straw, you're going to be in the Pacific garbage patch. How would that possibly be in the Pacific garbage patch if you're putting it in a landfill here at home? So, but you can't ask them logical questions, and you can't ask them things about the hygiene of that metal straw. Are you cleaning that metal straw because if you're not, it's going to get all sorts of pathogens in it. It's really bad—a great place to grow viruses and bacteria. All in that clean metal straw that you don't clean. You got to really clean. It's hard to clean the inside of a metal straw. You can't just run it through the dishwasher. You got to clean it. It's a lot more hygiene. But again, I digress. The point being, all of these things are connected, whether it's ESGs, whether and, and it's boring to most people on the conservative side. They don't engage in this. They don't push back against it because they take it in increments. It's not a tsunami of stuff that happens to you. It's not like all of the results of the climate anxiety-inducing psychopaths and the Church of Climate Doom has done this all at once. They did it as a trickle. They boiled the frog little by little, one degree at a time. You don't boil it all at once. You do it little by little. You accept a little bit. You give a little ground. And pretty soon you realize the patch of ground that you're defending isn't much of a patch of ground. In fact, you can't even stand on it anymore. If you live at the coast, you see this every day. You see the encroachment of these rules and regulations to the point that you won't be able to build that beach house. You won't be able to. You might not even be able to modify it because the rules keep changing. Height requirements, distance from mean high tide. Same thing with with water, any kind of water, lakes, rivers, the encroachment on your ability to build and own things on those is moving little by little. But it's forcing you into a situation where you won't have the kind of freedoms you don't. You don't have the kind of freedoms you had 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. And they under the name of progress. Now, with us right now, uh, and again, you move to the front of the line. We've got, uh, it looks like former Representative Pittman, uh, Larry Pittman on the phone. Welcome to the show. How are you today? 
Well, I'm up there for an old guy. How you doing? I am moderately neato. How are you? <laughs> well, I wanted to talk to you about this discussion of the uh, idiotic energy policies that you're talking about. Um, yes, sir. It, it brings to the fore the corruption of um, leadership in the North Carolina legislature. Two years ago, in uh, 2021, they had a bill, House Bill 951, run by Representative Ben Sharp, um, it, which was basically telling Duke Energy to do what they wanted to do and shut down their coal plants uh, years early and go more toward the so-called green energy. And um, I fought that thing tooth and nail, and so did some others who had fought the thing for years, or that sort of thing. Um, and I was deeply dismayed, because the day before we elected on it, uh, or excuse me, the day before we voted on it, one of those men was arguing as vehemently as anybody against that bill, and pointing out how stupid it was. And yet, the next day when we voted on it, and so did some others who had resisted that sort of thing before. And it's nothing other than Tim Moore um, making promises and not letting your bills run if you don't go along with him, uh, giving you everything you want if you do go along with him, and that sort of thing. That's the only thing I can attribute it to. Because I know. So wait, let me let me let me get this straight. You, the, the, wrong. Larry, let me voted for it and argued in favor of it. Larry, let me just tease this out a bit. So two different things. Uh, you're talking about the Duke, the the 951 Duke Energy Bill, and you and I both know in the legislative chambers when you see Duke lawyers, the guys with the shiny shoes, going in the room with any kind of environmental group, and there's some kind of discussion to be had. You know that the ratepayers are going to get hosed. You know that it's going right. to go badly. They always, whenever Duke Energy is supporting something that looks like it's against their best interests, it's us that's going to get hosed on that. We know that. You've seen it happen too many times. That's issue yeah. number one, is when Duke Energy is in favor of something that looks like they're shutting down something, just get ready because your bill is going to go up, and it's going to go up a lot. Number two, Absolutely. you're talking about the leadership of Speaker Tim Moore. Uh, he of Kings Mountain, just to the west of Charlotte here, who's been Speaker for some time, and in the way he has run the House with respect to, to this type, you know, the Medicaid expansion, uh, uh, climate change stuff. If you don't go along, he will punt. Your, your assertion is if you disagree with him in any way as a Republican, you will be punished, whether it's right. redistricting or committee assignments, that it's not, you know, like, okay, we disagree on this issue, but we can agree on these other issues, that using the power as punishment is kind of for the rank and file. And that's why it's more fear-based than it is ideological up there. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and he knew better than to approach me directly about it because that wasn't going to work. So he just uh, pushed me to the side and, you know, uh, would not hear my bills and that sort of thing. And some people have caved into that when we ought to be standing up to it like I did. And, uh, and, and and there there are a handful of you that have done so. I mean, I, I can recall the days of Richard Morgan, former Speaker of the House, that, that uh, created a deal where he became co-speaker by getting a handful of Republicans to join him. And he used his power when they were co-speaker with Jim Black, the infamous, now criminal Jim Black, 
when they ran the House together. And when they did redistricting, uh, Jim Black used redistricting to reward Democrats in redistricting the state. And Richard Morgan used redistricting to punish his enemies. It was a very clear case of, of power versus friendship in the way that they led. I mean, Richard Morgan. But it seems like in some ways, Tim, you're asserting that Tim Moore's leadership time, unlike Tillis's, and we could have a discussion about Tillis in a different manner, but that Tim Moore is, is leading much the way Richard Morgan probably did. Pretty much. Um, and you were redistricted, were you what not? What I'm didn't, trying to get across to people is that North Carolinians need to start paying a better attention to these things. And if your representative is voting for these things that you would never vote for because you know how stupid they are, then you need to get a new representative, maybe run against them yourself, but quit voting these people back in. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Even on this Medicaid expansion thing, it's been, it's come as a shock to folks across the country that Republicans are kind of embracing this under the auspices that they claim to be conservative, but they're massively expanding a federal program in the state. Uh, uh, some representatives are. I've talked to a few that are that are holding fast and they're not going to vote for this. And there's a few more that are saying they they were supporting it, but now they're not because pressure is increasing on them. Do you foresee where do you think the Medicaid expansion is, is going to go in the House? Well, I'm trying to do what I can to stop it. Uh, I did get one member who had voted for it initially to announce now that he's not going to uh, vote for it. Is that Ben and, Moss? In the end, you know. And so, Was that Ben um, Moss? Are you, are you I, referring I to Ben? I more to do that, okay. but it's going to take more than just me. We need our people to stand up and speak to these people and say, you vote for this, I will never vote for you again. It could be a you know, it could be a driving force for primaries uh, next year. Next year is going to be Absolutely. a crazy year, but uh, it could be a source of many primaries. Anything else you yeah. got on your mind, Representative? Well, I think it pretty much covers it, except to tell <laughs> you that you know, I if you don't know I'm your friend by now, you're not paying attention, and you're just well. doing a great job. And I wish we could have you all the time. Well, I appreciate that, and, and uh, Representative, I appreciate your service to the state and, and appreciate you being at least a voice to, to run contrary to the status quo. So thank you for what you've done as well, all right? Thank you, sir. God bless. Uh, Larry Pittman, thanks for the call. And, and by the way, great staff here, and I'm thankful, and I'm thankful for the, the folks who have been good to me. Pete's been great to me, Brent Witterbull, all of Vince Coakley, all the entire staff. I love this station. Everyone who listens knows that by now. If you don't, you haven't been paying attention or listening. Now, that puts us kind of to the top of the hour, but I do want to get, I've, I've kind of titled this, everything we've talked about today is the, the way in which the progressive movement has incrementally encroached on your freedoms, your rights, your your way of life. It's also the way they do it step by step. They also do it under the auspices of something else, like the Inflation Reduction Act to push that. You find it in North Carolina when you see Duke, and I've seen it happen, where the Duke Duke attorneys, and they're the guys with the nice suits and the shiny shoes, we used to say, go in the room with the environmentalists. We've got a lot more to talk about here because I haven't even gotten. It's, it's, the, it's, the, next, it's the next hour, third hour, getting ready to be underway. Stay tuned, 570-1110, the call-in numbers. We'll talk to you on the other side of the break. 